0: hi oh, everybody. How are we doing today? Happy summer. I hope everything's going well. I hope this life is full of love and kindness because that right there is going to be the key to how we win the day. Don't you think that Well, A little bit, a little more love and kindness in the world could go a long way. I think we could do that. Every day, Todd. Every yeah, day. I, I agree. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Absolutely. It's my mantra and I love it. We're going to have a great show today. We're going to talk about some big things. We're going to talk about innovation, the future, what's going on. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to agriculture and innovation and where things are at. I've got a great big brain hanging out with me today. I'm excited to finally pin this gentleman down. He's hard. He's, he is. He's, he's, he's a tough man to track down and get to hold still for a minute. But I got him. We got him. And he got nothing to do all day. So we got him as long as I feel like I can keep asking him questions. So I'm excited. Please welcome everybody. The BP. BP? What are you? Now you're, you're an oil company now, Walt. The VP. Let's try that. The VP of Innovation from Western Growers. Please, everybody, give it up for Walt Tufflock, dude. I am so stoked you're here today. Welcome,
1: Todd. It's great to be here. I am excited, and as you say, we we have nothing but time in front of us and a lot of topics to cover. So we will go where the wind takes us. And okay. uh, having listened to a few of your podcasts, I think this one will be uh, right in line and on brand.
0: I love it, brother. Thank you. I appreciate that. And well, let's just, you know what, let's both agree to that at the end. That's my, deal. it's like, we always start off with good intent. Let's get to the end and feel the same way. Then I know we had a good chat. <laughs> Before we get rolling though, brother, because I do, we, there is a lot of really cool things going on. I want to introduce people to Western Growers because people are like, oh, what is Western Growers? Well, if you haven't heard from them, they've been around almost a hundred years. So it's, it, they they're not a new they're not a new face out there. So but before we get into all that and introduce that start talking about innovation, what's going on in this crazy world of ours, if you wouldn't mind, give everybody a, just a quick little brief bio of who you are and introduce yourself to everybody, and then we'll get rocking.
1: Yeah, so my background is an interesting two-parter that, uh, in most cases, doesn't align that well, right? It's the, it's the fifth-generation family farm in Monterey County. I grew up on a cattle ranch. A vi- we put a wine vineyard in, some wine grapes with Mondavi. We put a bunch of leafy greens in with some growing partners so we've got a 10,000-acre ranch that basically has, has all key components of ag on it um, for a long time, right? Uh, since 1871. Wow. When my folks split, I actually sp- – I know. Um, and the funny story there, Todd, is great-great-grandfather was part of MJB Coffee, was, was then starting a cattle business with some relatives, and San Francisco didn't like cattle even then. And so um, San Francisco said, hey, cut that out in, in like Potrero Hill, right? In like Knob Hill. And he said, okay, fine. He looked on the map and he said, well, the railroad line looks like it's going down there. That would be a good place to feed some cattle. Made it happen.
0: Nice. So here we
1: are five generations later, still raising the cattle. We've added some business units to it, obviously. But it's, it's been an interesting ride in Monterey County for the last, you know, several decades for me and beyond that for the family. Wow. And then I left, right. So degree at Cal Poly, came up to Santa Clara, got the law degree, met my wife, um, got five kids now. It's all good on the home front, but I I kind of left the ranch behind, if you will. I came to the Valley. I was I was just you know awed by the technology. Huge Steve Jobs fan. Um, loved the personal computer revolution. Loved the internet revolution. Was at the front seat of a lot of it with eBay early on in 30 years of basically startup operating roles, a couple others that got acquired that I won't bore you with. Uh, But basically I know my way around startups. I know my way around ag. And in about 2015, 2014, I started poking around thinking, Hey, you know what this enterprise data center stuff and one more show in Vegas, and I'm going to go nuts. So (laughs) time to make a change. (laughs) And, And so we did, I mean, I think we did 10 shows in Vegas in about 14 months, Todd. And if I saw the Vegas airport one more time, I was going to lose my mind. Yeah. So rather than that, I basically made the switch. I came over and started poking around ag tech. My ag friends were asking about tech. My tech friends were asking about ag. Um, So I helped build the Thrive Accelerator um, and worked with Western Growers and a bunch of partners. And then Western Growers had the VP of Innovation come open after Hank Ickless retired and they split Hank's roll into two two parts. Deanne Davis got the science. I got the innovation, and we've been having a great time. So it's um, wow. it's been a fun mix of ag and tech the last several decades. It's been a really fun mix of that into ag tech
0: the last kind of you know five to ten years, and here we are. I love it. Well, you know what a great background and having that the, the, the family legacy of agriculture and then to be in the role that you've done and come from the perspective of being up in the valley like you are even today talking from the Silicon Valley and uh, that's a pretty interesting perspective I didn't realize that I didn't obviously didn't know the family history. I'm sorry that people hated your cows back then but they hate them more today if it makes you feel any better
1: <laughs> <laughs> they sure do and it's really funny and just on that topic Todd, I don't know we'll dive into others but I think it's funny so I work really closely with the nonprofit that I founded in Salinas Valley. And, and basically you're right. They're mad at cows. They're mad at a lot of ag production stuff, but it's really funny because if you actually talk to Frank Mitlenor from UC Davis, who's one of the leaders on methane emissions, he will tell you that we have seaweed a A, we're counting emissions the wrong way in ag, especially livestock B we've got innovation coming in the form of seaweed additives with Jones Saul, and some licensed tech at blue ocean. And I know a couple other seaweed additives, long story short, I wish the folks that were, were so mad at the cattle for methane would actually realize that you are counting it wrong, and it's been counted wrong for a long time, and you're totally discounting the role innovation will play in reducing that methane. I think dairy first, then beef, because you gather dairy all the time, so it's easy right. to do food additives. But it's just another great example of where we can't even agree on the facts to count some of this stuff, and we don't want to give any credit to the innovators. Meanwhile, alternative proteins getting like $10 billion yeah. <laughs> to revolutionize stuff. And if we really do the, the analysis on global global footprint, I think you'll acknowledge that uh, alternative proteins have a ways to go to catch that efficient livestock supply chain.
0: Yeah. Uh, first of all, alternative proteins are got a long way to go to go just to get out of their own way at this point, <laughs> because yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And, and I agree with you that, well- but it's so funny what you say, you know, that we don't measure, we don't. And it's just so typical, right? We don't, we were talking about this before we flipped the camera. We just, we don't listen to, to understand. We always listen to reply in so many ways. And I think that this is one of those examples where people just get stuck. They don't listen any longer. They're just in this zone, this lane. They're just, this is what I believe. And it's all bad. And they don't really take the time to, to, to fully understand. And it's one of those deals that, you know, in my opinion, is so, important to keep asking ourselves how do we value food and you, you bring up a great point when it comes to the method it comes to these cows right they're so easy to build It's so easy to say that's the problem that's not really the problem you know cows are just one piece of a very small puzzle that's going on cows are not causing climate to crisis right we are right the, the, <laughs> the, the, the earth is doing its own thing which we don't want to ever talk about and then we're doing a whole bunch of other things that we here in this country try to lift the bar so high but the same token, we're not holding the bar up for all these other countries. They're causing far more damage to the economy to the planet than we are. It's yes. just goofy, man. It's goofy. So I'm sorry. You know, hopefully your wake cows me. have gotten. Go ahead. No, I said, wake
1: me up when China and India decide to do anything about it. Right. 100%. Well, you know, <laughs> there's the problem.
0: Yeah, and hopefully your cows are going through therapy and they're feeling self-confident and they're not, you know, <laughs> looking at themselves and, and you know, feeling victimized and all the other things they're having. So, you know, I wish them well in their journey to you know find happiness. They're doing their best, <laughs> <laughs> living their best life, hundred <laughs> percent, dude. Tell me, get this. Give me a as we dive into this because there's a lot I want to talk about. But I, I, I can't start without letting people know what Western Growers is, right? Because again, like I brought it up, you guys have been around doing agriculture for almost close. It's it, by my math, and I went to public high school, but I mean, it looks like you're right at hundred years. In like another year or two,
1: 1926. It's totally yeah. true. So yeah. the company started as an advocacy business. Um, as you say, it's been around you know more than five minutes, about ninety ninety seven years, um, and and it started as advocacy in D.C. Uh, and and Sacramento, and we've we've broadened it out to include Arizona, Colorado, and some of the western region. Um, and and what it, it really then opened up the company to some really nice growth potential was realizing, you know, what we advocate for a lot of this stuff, but it's really hard to operate a farming business in a lot of cases, yeah. and there's not a lot of tailored offerings and things like insurance and benefits. So, so you know, it's a family of companies um, that's out there. And in addition to the advocacy part of the business, there is an insurance and benefits business that provides really good insurance and benefits products to the ag community, which does need its own set of offerings for a lot of reasons, you can guess.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and then out of that, out of that you know, money-making enterprise around providing that service to folks for decades, we've grown into now a science team and an innovation team that get to invest the capital off the other businesses to really push things forward for Western growers. So it's, a, it's an umbrella of companies, advocacy at the core, insurance benefits at the core on a lot of the revenue side, and then the go forward, the look ahead is really science with DN and innovation with my team. And um, it's been a really good mix of, of initiatives, and progress on all three fronts.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. And you guys have been at the forefront, and as like I said, for a very, very long time. But I love what you're doing on innovation. And obviously, that's your area of expertise based on your bio, what you've done. You know, this is not your, I'm 100% positive your VCR is not flashing 12 at home. Guaranteed it's not, right? <laughs> Can't even find it. <laughs> exactly. I think we well, gave it go. away finally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there you go. But, you know, when I think about agriculture, and innovation, it's, it, there's a lot of like scary parts to all that. There's a lot of things that get people freaked out. There's a lot of people, people, things that I think people don't truly understand. But one thing's for sure, the investment dollars in the last three to five years are nuts. I just read an article that talked about just last year in India alone, $2.4 billion in investment money thrown at it. The number here in the United States, I, I don't even know, I, I don't think there really is an, a, an accurate number, but the number that keeps getting thrown around is like $7.1 billion of, of money being passed around into agriculture technology over the last several years. So I wanna open up with this question because it's one that I keep asking myself. It's one that I keep asking others. And I think you know if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get somebody in here with a brain like yours, I gotta ask this question to you. Who's responsible for funding innovation? Right, And I come from the angle of like, is it the responsibility of the consumer? Is it the responsibility of the retailer? Is it the venture capitalist? Or is it just luck? Because so much of what goes on, I, I spoke with a company yesterday that's doing some cool stuff, and they've done things that, that to, to innovate and to do stuff. The retailer that was behind it changed their mind. They're like, well, what am I going to do now with all the things that I've invested? Like, I did this for them type of deal. And it, it really is a sad story to think about, but it's really a part of it. So talk to me about that. Who's responsible for that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, Todd. And I like the way you asked it, actually. who Who Thank is? Like, like, don't even lead the witness, right? Um, so I would say at its core, I think the group that a lot of the public thinks is responsible for it is venture capitalists. And, and as a guy who's got ex-Ebay friends and friends from other places in the venture capital world, I can tell you that venture capital is primarily responsible for delivering returns to their limited partners so that they right. can make some money and do it again, right? And so... I think venture capitalists have a role. And just to share some numbers with you, um, because you mentioned a couple, um, that 2.4 number is kind of interesting because back when Climate Corp got picked up by Monsanto, right? I think 2014, so not even 10 years ago, we were in that kind of three to 5 billion range. We have 10X the level of what's now agri-food tech investment, right? So it's ag and food. So it's behind the farm gate and it's on the way to the customer, right? If you take both of those halves, and it is about half and half. Um, so some of that growth is artificial because we renamed the category, right? We went from ag tech behind the farm gate to agri-food tech. Okay, that encompassed more stuff, but that, that got to a high water mark and it took a while, fits and starts after Climate Corp and Monsanto. But basically people started putting toes in the water, hands in the water, full bodies in the water. We got to $50 billion in 2021 in agri-food tech, half and half, half behind the farm gate, half on the, on the rest of the journey. And what was interesting was, So as a guy watching this space and I was getting some heat from some friends of mine that are in the investor community, I kept saying, look, there there are some warning signs ahead for both CEA and Alternative Protein. And those two sectors in 21 represented 42% of the dollars in that space. So you have got the venture capitalists putting 42% of the dollars into play in spaces that are now dumpster fires, right? that's a problem on a couple axes. First, it's a problem because the venture capitalists now see the dumpster fire and realize, oh my, what have I done? I I better not do any more of those. And secondly, folks that haven't made an investment in those spaces are now getting approached by companies who are in dire straits, not just a great musical band, um, and are basically saying, oh, (laughs) okay, the fodder for later. I like it. So here's what's interesting. At a time when these companies need more capital than ever, the folks willing to write those checks are less willing than ever to write them. So yeah. you're going to see a lot of asset sales in controlled environment, ag. You're going to see a lot of asset sales and alternative protein. Um, and what's interesting about it is the venture capital space then shrunk to $30 billion right. in 2022. And if you look at 2023, it doesn't look great either, right? So I think what you're going to have, John, is you're going to have $50 in 21. 30 billion in 22 and it's not going back to 50 anytime soon cuz those two spaces are dead and nothing's replacing it yet,
0: right? Right.
1: So we're going to have 30 to 35 billion again, I semi-confidently predict in 2023. So you're going to have 50 billion in one year turn into 60 to 65 in two years. Well, you can see how that movie's going to end, right? You're going to see yeah. a lot of folks that were chasing capital that aren't going to have the right metrics, that aren't going to have the right customer acquisition story, that aren't going to have the right something, and that next round of funding is going to get a lot harder for agtech. combine that with one other factor on who's responsible. VCs are responsible for making money in any segment. Ag tech has to compete with mobile, fintech, enterprise, right? All the cool stuff, right? Now AI, right? You think a lot of money didn't just get siphoned over to AI when ChatGPT rolled out? Of course it did. People want some more of that open, open AI stuff, right? So I think the challenge for AgTech, and it's funny, Sarah Nolette and Matthew Pryor and I from Tenacious had a big back and forth on whose fault this is, right, to your question. And they said, well, you know, basically AgTech, ag-tech and Silicon Valley don't necessarily align. And, and my take on it was directly opposed to theirs. They were like, well, Silicon Valley has to figure out AgTech. And I'm like, no, AgTech has to figure out Silicon Valley because it's a supply-demand game, right? We're bringing pitches to folks who have more pitches than they know what to do with anyway, and we're losing because our math and our economics aren't as interesting to them as FinTech or the next mobile app. I get it. That's not Silicon Valley's fault. They're creating unicorns daily. AgTech has to come to them, right? Yeah. So, so in terms of who's, who's supposed to do it, venture capital is supposed to do it, that's a little bit about, about, about why it's hard. The other folks that I think could do a better job of investing in it, federal and state governments should do more to drive innovation and economic development, not just straight up you know, startup funding and not straight up research funding. I think we as a country, and I don't, and I don't think this is unique to the US because I've been to a lot of other places now, we do a great job of funding research. And writing and early stage R&D, we do collectively a terrible job of commercializing it. And so our yield off the investment in the education system and in the research and development system and writing needs to pivot. And I've talked to the CDFA folks about this, California Department of Ag folks. I've talked to some of the, some of the folks in DC. Folks have different opinions on this one, but my, yeah. my opinion is pretty straight up on this one. If we tied metrics around the dollars that are coming from the federal programs to the outcomes in terms of commercialization and commercial success, we would be better off. We, we, folks would still write right? Folks, folks love to write that have PhDs, but if you can't commercialize it, I want to discount your value to the system because you're not getting stuff into the marketplace. You're just writing and teaching. Those people to me are less valuable than people who contribute, get stuff built, IPed, licensed, and out there as companies. Those are the people we need to promote. Right now, the system doesn't do that very well.
0: Wow. That's a big statement, sir. It really is. and, it's, and it, But what a great angle to present when you think about uh, really, in, in a lot of ways, is a very unknown subject to a lot of people, which is how money gets into business, especially especially with the rise of, of what's happened in the past few years with the venture capital folks. I mean, if they really right. peel back the onion and see where it's at, I think people are freaked out by how this works. But you are you touched on so much. Gee, I mean, Chris, I don't even know where to start with this, man. It's like, I I want to get into the whole CEA thing. It's like, well, do we do it now? Do we wait? Do we go through a We too? have time. Have I know we do, time. but so <laughs> let's 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 stick with the CEA space a little bit because both you and I are um, pay attention to this. Obviously, it's what you do all day. It's what I you know keep an eye on all day, type of deal with one eye at least. But it's such an interesting category because a the amount of money that's flowed into this, the the, the way it started, the disconnected it had in the very beginning, the disconnected I think in some ways it still continues to have today, um, in so many different ways. What do you think about how that money's flowed into the space? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. There's no two ways about it. I mean, why do you think that, you know, let's just stick to the basic first question. Is like, we'll drift from there. But why do you think this category has struggled to find retail acceptance?
1: So I do spend a lot of time with controlled environment agriculture, right? It is the ultimate coopetition with our growers. And it's the ultimate, you know, on the one hand, You've got folks like Driscoll's doing a deal with Plenty to test out new, new berry genetics in places like Virginia, new facility in Compton that's pretty cool. All right, awesome. Um, you've got a bunch of greenhouses that can mitigate some of the risk on, on weather, right? You've got guys mm-hmm. like Taylor Farms doing a deal with the folks in Indiana, yep. um, Greenleaf, I believe. Um, it's interesting. And, and it's, uh, you, you always watch what folks like Bruce Taylor do because Bruce knows a little... And Bruce has seen a little and Bruce gets to see a lot more. And if Bruce makes a bet on greenhouse versus vertical, that's interesting to me. Right. I agree. Um, So I think like back up to the core of CEA, why did CEA get over $7 billion in five years before the dumpster fire really got lit? Mm -hmm. I think, and I've written about this a couple of times, the media got caught cheerleading Todd. And I think the media should be ashamed of themselves And I'll call out AgFunder News and a couple others that have done this. Everyone who thought that CEA was going to be a greenfield opportunity to create stuff out of thin air, no, that was eBay in 99 creating e-commerce. That was Google in 95 creating search, right? Those are greenfield opportunities that can take flamethrowers to other segments. The segment in this case that everyone tended to forget, and it mirrors alternative proteins for later, right? Yeah. Everyone seemed to forget that every CEA provider, whether greenhouse or vertical, at the end of the day was going to have a product that competed with someone like Bruce Taylor, Rod Braga, Miles Ryder for Shelf Space. Who in the world forgot that those guys don't give up Shelf Space without a fight, right? Huh. That's just an insane delusion by the media. Therefore, they're cheer- they cheerleaded what? CEA is going to change the world. CEA is going to revolutionize our food supply chain. CEA is going to do everything in roses and puppies. CEA was never going to do all that for two primary reasons, both of which, Todd, have gotten worse in the last couple of years. Number one, the cost to build out these facilities. Let's talk about vertical for a minute. Massive, right? right, And getting worse. You know what construction costs are like. Second, yep. the cost to power that son of a gun, right, is insane. And we know what energy costs are doing the last couple of years. You can argue the, you can argue the why, but you can't argue the facts. So, right. again, you've got construction and energy costs, the two biggest death knells for vertical farms going only one direction. And, and then you can't – so you've got two unit economics to worry about in CEA. And, and guys like Henry Gordon Smith at Agritecture have been with me on this one. There have, been, there have been some bright minds in this space that have supported my position – until the unit economics on these places get to the point where 10,000 acres of dirt and X acres of indoor, vertical, or, or um, greenhouse can compete on a unit economic basis, and then until the product coming out the back of that facility, the dirt field or the indoor facility, can match on a unit economics basis inside the store to the customer, it's a very short story for successful CEA operations. Right? Yeah, so both t- unit economics have to work. And one of them is getting a lot worse. And I haven't seen that much progress. And again, the biggest challenge to me of CEA is you can only do so many crops at some point, and it has to be premium crops to, to, to command the value. Well, that sounds a lot like lettuce and strawberries. And again, you're not just going to walk into a store and take out some of, some of the Western Growers members. For shelf space without a fight they keep tracking this down to the skew level inside the stores i mean we're, we're at a board meeting with western growers and a guy a guy drops out at happy hour and says i'll see you for dinner goes to a local store and says Who's this skew that took my product out of this store down in Arizona? Yeah. Yeah. You've got the CEO of a billion-dollar company skipping happy hour, driving over to a local store to see what's going on, Todd. I don't yeah. think the CEA guys in the media understood the level of competition these guys are, are in 24-7, and that's what they that's what they saw with CEA, and that's how they've, that's how they've reacted,
0: as you did. Yeah. Hundred percent. I think in the, early, the early guys <clears throat> that were in this thing had the visions. To your point of you know unicorns and rainbows, and they were going to knock Salinas out of the deal, and uh, that got the media hyped up. The venture guys started throwing at it because they saw big return potential because of the narrative that they sold. Um, but I, I think what they really faltered on is one of which you're not going to replace Salinas. M- maybe you do someday, but it's not going to be the second day of your existence. Um, so I think it's a faulty conversation to begin with. To be totally candid, you brought it up the commodity that they're all trying to sell is so incredibly boring to the consumer today. It has become just so repetitive. It's, it's, it's just, there's not a lot of excitement in the category. It's how cheap can we go? It's two for five. You know, they live and the CA guys, the early guy, they live in an eight ninety nine clamshell world back then. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to tell their investors right. that they live in a two ninety nine world. Now when it's not costing, you know, they wish they could get, 290, you know, they need 299 to put in their own pocket, let alone what they're trying to get <laughs> on a clamshell. And I think that was right. when they really got into big trouble. And I think as as the money started flying, and then you had the FOMO, right? Then you had the investor community FOMO factor. I got to get into this now. So I got to go do this and that. The shrapnel is unbelievable. You know, I have a dear friend that I, I listen to over in Europe all the time. He's a big brain and he talks about a lot of stuff. And he calls this demise the future of trampoline parks, because that's what these places are going to turn into is, you know, but they're they're just, it's unfortunate. But again, it goes back to that investment thing. It's like what we talked about, who's responsible for funding innovation. And I don't think they went about it the right way. I don't think they brought retail along. I don't think they explained themselves well. I I, I spent time with with Tom Stenzel and he said, I don't think the name CEA was a really great choice. I gotta be honest with you, I don't either. Um, You know, it doesn't really gravitate towards people. So there's all these factors that come into it. So I love the way you've presented it because it goes back to what my original question was was about who's responsible for funding innovation. And if you don't bring the retailers alongside the the, the equation, if you don't get their buying, if you don't get them to sit there like they're, and I think some of them are doing it now, you know, great. You're going to have the greatest thing in the world, but if nobody's going to cut you a PO, it's just still sitting in your facility. Right. And I think that's where this, in my opinion, really got off the rail. And then that doesn't even cover Let's get into the organic, non-organic side of this. And that's a whole nother debate that's causing elitism and, to the point that, you know, and, I, and you and I have shared this conversation. How do you feed the world, right? If your goal is to feed the world organic, whether you believe in that or not, it doesn't matter. But if that's what you believe in, you're not going to do it without embracing agriculture technology. Because we know there's not enough farmers coming into the game. There's not enough acres being converted just to any kind of dirt at this juncture. It's a fascinating take, brother. It's a fascinating take. Yeah. Well, and let me just, uh, you mentioned the venture capital. And we'll go back to
1: that. So, again, yeah. you get mad at the media because they're, they're wasting hype on a category that, in my opinion, didn't deserve it. But you really get mad at the venture capitalists because you're writing, again, $7 billion in checks. You're writing $250 million investments. You're writing massive dollars. And I don't know how many of them ever found me, but it's a small number. I don't know how many of them ever found retail. I mean, they should have been talking to growers, growers' associations, yeah. retailers, like you say. I mean, the, due, the lack of quality due diligence in the investment segment, suggest that the investors and I've I've flamed a couple of them. They've they've they have they've come at me, but they've admitted, hey, just be nice about it. <laughs> I'm like, well, you guys weren't very nice when I when I tried to shut down the hype factory early, so I'm not always that nice now. But right. again, the fact that that seven billion dollars got written, and and here and here is the follow on point that I think we can dive into. Two thirds of it goes to vertical, one third of it goes to greenhouse. Poor due diligence, probably on both sides, because. I think within the space, and I heard some of the stuff you and Tom were talking about, and I agree with it. I think CEA is a total wish list item for vertical, because I think vertical wins. If greenhouse and vertical gets bundled, I think greenhouse loses. If I were a greenhouse operator, if I were a greenhouse industry association, if I were in greenhouses at all, I would stop using CEA tomorrow. I would force people to use greenhouse or vertical. I don't want to be lumped in with those non-performing vertical farming assets any day of the week, twice on Sunday, right? Forget about it. So I think CEA should die if I'm the greenhouse guys. I think it needs to live if I'm the vertical guys. It's their cage match. They'll figure it out. But, yeah. but I think CEA does nobody any favors. And here's what I think because greenhouses, again, back to Bruce, where did Bruce write a check? Indiana for greenhouse, right? That diversifies how we can get to the East Coast, manages some of the travel risk and logistics risk that came up during COVID. I mean, you were seeing three to 5X lifts in like planes, trains, and automobiles for getting this food from California back to the East Coast. And in some cases, you couldn't even find a way to get it back there in the timeframe you needed to meet all the buyer specs, right? So so it's a hedge factor for some of our growers that are looking at it. But what's really interesting is greenhouses, my opinion, will take a flamethrower all by themselves to vertical because everything vertical is trying to do, greenhouse has been doing in some cases for 10 plus years with patient capital, building, iterating, doing it all, not in the spotlight, What is what is CEA breakdown into two parts? Verticals getting the headlines. Greenhouses are growing stuff. Right. So I I don't think it ends well for a lot of the vertical farms that are still out there looking for a life a lifeline. And again, if you're a new investor looking at this space, who's coming in? And if you're a new startup, if you're not in the CEA space now and you're trying to enter, you, you need
0: to talk to some folks. Yeah, you're, I I I could not advise somebody right now to to get into this space unless they have something alternative to what's in the current marketplace. Now, look, I'm very, I'm really excited about what's happening with berry transition and some of this other stuff. I think you know what's going to mm-hmm. be happening in Virginia is going to be very interesting to see play out. I know, and I think you would agree with me one hundred percent. Driscoll's not going to put a berry out that's not a Driscoll berry. If you don't know what that is. Exactly. Store, find one, you'll figure it out really quick, right? And I think that yep, that's really I have. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things and, and one of the things that I think that, that I keep harping on, I think that's that's important to bring up is that what these folks are doing today is incredibly important, right? And I don't want to diminish some of the things that are happening, the patents, the technology, the IP, some of the stuff that's out there. Because what it's going to do in five years, 25 years from now is going to be remarkable. And I think it will be a part of the agriculture future. But to your point, I think that they sold themselves, you know, I, I just think they all walked in with the really shiny loafers on and they had a really good speech and it sounded really good and ag is exciting to everybody and we're going to just overtake the world and the world really didn't give a crap in so many ways. And, you know, you can only sell so much pesto in the world. You can only grow so much basil in the world, right? I mean, it's unfortunate and I don't mean to be critical because I believe the space needs to exist. I think to your point about what greenhouses, I want to touch on this. I agree with you. I think the greenhouse industry is incredibly strong. I think it's incredibly undervalued. I don't think they do a great job of lifting themselves up as a group um, in a lot of ways to talk about what they're doing. Cause you can't look, I mean, what is it 85% of the organic tomatoes in the marketplace come out of a greenhouse today?
1: Right. Think about that.
0: So take that out of the marketplace and ask yourself, where's that going to come from? And I, I just think that, you know, there's an opportunity for, for a lot of this to repivot and to refine a voice and, and to do some things and to try to clean up the mess that's been created. And it's hard to say it that way, but it really is the truth. Um, and, and it's and it's unfortunate because there's a lot of really good ideas that I think will never get to the top of the you know top of the pile because I think they're just going to spin and burn out.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually think the most interesting asset owners of the vertical farming asset class is going to be the third buyer, right? So there's the original buyer. Yeah. There's the guy that buys it at a fire sale just because he can, and there's a third guy who actually thinks about it and has a strategy when he buys it, and he probably yeah. gets it the cheapest and can do the most with it. So to me. Yes, you're right. It's going to be in the marketplace and we're going to see greenhouses out there. And we're, we are going to see stuff under glass. Absolutely. Um, how much stuff will we see in vertical? We'll see. But I thought, I mean, Bree Ryder-Smith, again, part of the Driscoll family, um, did a great job laying out the use case. If you were CEA in 2015, 16, 17, 18, you should have been selling use cases that were high logistics, high travel, high dollar cost, and can't grow locally. What does that sound like to me? Middle East, Maybe parts of yeah. Africa, right? So yeah. you should have been selling CEA as a, as a remote location solve, but again, or vertical specifically, the, that didn't get put into the decks. What well, got like put into the decks so was we're going to take over the world. And that was the mistake. So now if they can right size it and get in with some incremental plays with some of the right capital that's not nine figure checks, maybe something interesting comes out of this. But, but, you know, short of that, I mean, she, she laid out the ideal use case. Get this stuff. Grown in the Middle East where you can't grow it and have to ship it, and and you can do some you can do some good work in the marketplace. But other than limited use cases, until the math improves again at both unit economics, facility, and product and plan right. it is just going to be hard to break in because I'm sorry, the retailers say what you will about them. They're price driven because their customers force them to be price driven. So you're right. That two ninety nine that you need to capture in margin, that's not in their business model. That's in yours. No.
0: I 100% agree. I tell everyone that I deal with in this space that if you're not looking at the Middle East, you're not looking at Africa, you're not looking at underdeveloped countries to put your technology, I think you're missing the boat of financial gain because I've been to Dubai. I talked about it. I've been to Dubai. I've been to the Middle East. I've seen product from Los Angeles wholesalers on the shelf in Dubai, came over on Emirates, 15-hour flight. I'm sure, freight was more than a dollar a box to get there. I'm just going to assume. you know, There's a lot of yep. opportunity, there, but you take a look in the CA space now. You've got Air over there with the researchers, so they've got other people that are over there now. That are doing some big things. I personally think that's the lifeline move in a lot of ways. Is go over there and get your revenue stream established because I, you know, look, you're 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 growing literally growing food in a food desert, kids. I mean, it just I, you are not going to grow lettuce outside in the Middle East. Not going to happen. Right? It just Ever. doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And I think that's where the opportunity lies. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that is going to change itself over the next three years, maybe five. Yeah, I love totally it. Totally agree. Well, we're going to piss. I guarantee you so far we got people riled. Good. <laughs> got we got fun. more to cover. We I got more to cover. You. Hey, they get riled. Call me. Send me an email. They do all the time. I don't give a shit. I'll answer them. Let's go. I'm easy to find. Right. I'm easy yeah, to find, too. <laughs> me too. Let's, I want to keep going down this trail, but I also think I, I don't want to not throw some love at, you know, the Center for Innovation and Technology. So I'm going to give you kind of a whole big two-part question, let you run with it. A, what is, you know, what is it, what are you in charge of there with your innovation center and your technology, what's going on? And then talk a little bit about some of the things that you want that you're working on and let's see where it takes us.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, no, three really big missions for us. It's very clear. Um, One is automation, right? We've got a massive labor challenge and we can dive into the details, but at a high level labor is getting more expensive. Domestic workforce is choosing to work at, you know, Jamba and Starbucks instead of in the fields Um, and the international workers, they're getting more expensive because you're, you're responsible for housing and transport for those folks. Right. So You've got a declining domestic workforce. We went from 10 million to two and a half, 2.4 million workers um, mm-hmm. for domestic, as family farms got you know condensed and bought up, and um, the, the kids of the farm workers didn't want the parents' jobs for a couple of generations now. They've they so it's aged out. It's an aging workforce. Now the solution to that's one of two things: we either get more uh, international workers to help fill that gap, and we have. We went from 48,000 in 2006 to 371,000 in 2022, right? So, so 6X plus lift in, in H2A workers. And we've driven automation, right? We do more than ever with automation. Um, and we'll talk about some of the automation solutions, I'm sure. But basically, automation is my number one mission at Western Growers because our growers are feeling the pain of having to plant and grow and not harvest some of their product because they don't, they don't have the right amount of labor when they need it. So there's a labor gap that H2A and automation together are trying to fill. That's job one for me. Second, mm-hmm. there's massive pressure. And you know this one well. You, you talked about the pesticide stuff. There's massive pressure in DC and Sacramento on reducing, if not eliminating, some of the key tools we have in the toolkit for ag around pesticides um, and other chemistry solutions. And so we call that the biology chemistry portfolio. So just like there's a portfolio of domestic labor, international labor, and automation for, for labor solutions, there's a portfolio of, Chemistry, chemistry efficiency solutions, and biological solutions around inputs, right? And so those are my two big, two big areas that Western Grows that our team focuses on. Uh, And then third, because we're going to have all these fancy robots, because we're going to have all these fancy biologicals, we are going to need a different kind of student than the two year and four year colleges put out today, right? It's more cross disciplinary than ever. You've got to have some biology, you've got to have some agronomy. But you've got to have some computer science and you've probably got to have some artificial intelligence or hardware engineering behind you as well. Sure. So we're we're up leveling the community college system in California to accommodate this cross discipline student. And we've got we've got a grant from California Department of Food and Ag to help with that for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars that Kerry Peterson's running, doing a great job with. And we're working to take that to every two-year college at SAG-Base. There's about 35 of the 118 we've identified in California that can do the job. Hartnell, Reedley, Imperial, all the usual suspects, plus a few others. Mm -hmm. And then bring that back to the four-year. Because if you look at the model of of education, my opinion, I've talked to Andy Thule and at the Cal Poly about this and some of the folks at the UC side. The four-year institutions are where the research needs to happen to get the product into early stage. So that startups can then exit campus and go do some work, right? The two-year campuses then can be the opportunity to fill those gaps. So basically, four years, create the research, get it off campus, get founding teams that are cross-disciplined, need some engineering, need an agriculture guy, need a finance guy, right? You need all the disciplines. And then you basically end up with companies and ideas starting up. And hopefully, you you can fill the spots that can build the robots, Sell the biologicals, support the biologicals and the robots out of the two-year program because I don't want to ask a kid for hundred grand to go to Cal Poly or a little bit more than that to go private to come out for ag if we don't have to. If we can get it done at a two-year school or complement that with some of the four-year after, that's a better sure. model. So that's a high level. We're using we're using innovation to push automation for labor, biologicals for inputs, and next-gen ag worker to be able to build and service all of it. I love it. Let's
0: talk about, stick on the labor for a little bit. I mean, you know, AI, automation, all this stuff comes with the same narrative on the backside of people freaking out. Jobs are going to be lost. It's going to happen. It's inevitable, right? I think of all the draft horses that, you know, had a protest when they got bought, you know, the tractor came around, right? It happens. Yeah. It's way, it, it look, you, you, you can't be shocked by technological progress on this planet, um, and and then come back to this 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 morality sometimes position that we take on certain some of these issues because technically you, you got a cell phone in your back pocket right so you're already dealing with you know it's just the way it works right it's just this is a part of it and I, granted it's, it's worth these conversations but you're not going to slow the train down right so how do we deal with this how do we deal with this jobs are lost and and people are going to be reassigned and you know it's a byproduct of of everything that we've this planet has done you know. Uh, forever which is advancing forward right right no that's right and i'm
1: i'm not with those folks who would say hey we need to push pause on ai we uh, you, know, you know what no don't give the code control over things that can do things right <laughs> leave it in the computer they don't get to control things they just get to to advise and and consent right so so things like chat gpt that can give you an output when you ask a question that's pretty well put together okay great right would you let that run the robot? Would you let that run the, the military? Would you let that run the, the, the nuclear codes? Probably not, right? So it's right. what you do with it that is, that, is, that is the interesting part to me. And just on that front side, it's interesting. So I, I, I had two AI applications hit my radar screen in the last couple of weeks. Number one is this guy, Kirill, and I'm forgetting his name, but he's a LinkedIn. We've gone back and forth a little bit on some stuff now. He took the open AI product for ChatGPT wrote an ag specific version of it that gave you advice on what to plant and when, right? So given, given climate conditions, given soil conditions, given, you know, on-farm conditions, all that stuff, you've got a choice of, of, you know, what seed to plant and when, and, and, you know, it wasn't perfect. I mean, it's a version 0.5, right? But it's something, but it's, it's so cool that it's out. I mean, remember, ChatGPT, and folks forget this. Even my kids forget this because, you know, long-term to them is Tuesday. Um, ChatGPT only came out in November, so it just got here, right? It literally right. hasn't even been a year, and, and here we are less than six months later when this thing rolled out. You had an ag-specific regenerative AI application that you could download and put on this little beauty. And you're right. This thing has got more horsepower than that laptop I took to college back in 83, right? By a yeah. ways, it's not even a fair fight. So that comes out. And you're like, well, that's interesting. Little garage guy tinkering on his you know, nights and weekends with a day job. That's all good. But then Tim Hammerich, Future of Ag podcast, good guy, did a great podcast with the Farmers Business Network team. Um, they did Norm, Ode to Norman Borlaug, right, in about three months. And Norm was that same thing, but at FBN scale. So you can see how FBN is using that. So think about the thinking. This wasn't even on the roadmap in Q4 of last year. I guarantee it, right? But here we are in Q2, and these two guys are on a podcast explaining that Norm will give you basically that same thing as Kirill's app. It'll give you, give me all the inputs on your, crop, on your field, and I'll tell you what to plant and when to plant it. And again, not perfect. Is it doing as good a job as the most experienced agronomist? Probably not. But is it doing a good enough job to make it interesting? Definitely. Do I think either of those two products roll out as an agricultural vertical application solution in the mobile stores without ChatGPT GPT out in Q4, no chance, right? So, so you've got AI investment dollars flowing in at record speed after chat GPT because there's nothing that investors like more than a rapid unicorn who's making a lot of noise. Right. <laughs> um, and so, So, you know, things are advancing with things like AI because horizontally they're advancing and that'll, that'll improve verticals. But, you know, I don't see a whole lot of risk on the agriculture side from AI because we're going to have checks and balances every time that AI hits an actual piece of equipment that's not your phone, right? If that AI is driving a tractor around, there's going to be a ton of checks and balances. I've seen a lot of autonomous equipment in the fields the last couple of years, various form factors, various sizes, various various folks next to it on the agri- con- uh, sorry on the agricultural operation side and on the startup side. I mean we're, we're not going to be giving full power to these things anytime soon without an awful lot of governance being thought about. And again, the regulators know this is out there now. They've, they're going to have their say in it. Um, so no, I, I think AI will continue to push things. Here's one wrinkle I want to put into the discussion. I actually think, that, that AI has been pushing the autonomous thing in the background, and now it's sort of its own thing in the foreground, right? But it's worth pointing out from an agricultural perspective that, that innovation is in an interesting spot from an economic development perspective, right? So if you look at autonomous vehicles, Sacramento, in the case of Monarch, said, you know what, we're not going to give you kids with the electric tractors uh, a rule change on autonomy. Autonomy still can't happen in California. And that, you know, better or worse is, is, is in part because California has decided that those jobs, to your point, those driving jobs, those are important. So California's made the call, we're going to value those jobs. Fine, fair policy decision, right? But there are ramifications of that policy decision. And Governor Ducey in Arizona exposed that in living color when he turned into a governor, right? So Ducey saw what was happening in California. He saw that Uber and Lyft, the ride-sharing companies, and people forget this time. Do you know where Uber had the hardest time figuring out its ride-sharing app when it got going?
0: Here in California, wasn't. It?
1: in its headquarters location in san francisco absolutely right sfo wasn't very nice to them a lot of places with cabs weren't very nice to them and so so ironically you had uber in the in the heart of silicon valley having an awful tough time in the heart of silicon valley rolling its product out and doing some r&d around it because of the regulations environment that california created well guess what ducey walked in as governor of arizona said that's silly and you know what's sillier. The fact that my Arizona police department is going to do some sting operation on the Uber and Lyft drivers at the Super Bowl we're hosting in a couple of weeks. That's even worse. You guys are out. I'm bringing some new guys in. We're going to welcome Uber and Lyft down to Arizona. And so by welcoming ride sharing, they welcomed innovation. And Uber and Lyft now have research and development centers down there. And fast forward to Autonomous, they've done the same thing. They've said, you know what? We don't want to, to decide this stuff for you guys. You're smart. You figure it out. You're going to bump into some things. We know that. We'll work with you on it. We're, we're, we're going to work with you to, to limit the liability exposure. We're going to work with you to be out there on the roads. We know you need to test this in real-world environments. So Arizona said, welcome down, autonomy. California said, not so fast. We're going to protect the jobs that are here now. How's that working out? Well, not very well. As I put in a post a while back, California literally handed hundreds to thousands of jobs To Arizona over Ducey's two terms. Now, Katie Hobbs is now in there as governor, and we'll see where she wants to come down on this one because obviously the party switched when Ducey turned out. But it's worth noting that this is a choice that California is going to have to make in a lot of cases. We're going to continue to lead in research and development in a lot of areas, right? Right. But if we continue to value the jobs we have now that are phasing out in favor and and, and then losing the jobs that are on the on the roadmap for the future, which Arizona is getting, you know, it, it's death by a thousand cuts if you're not careful. And so yeah. the, the latest news on this front is that Raven, who got bought by a Case New Holland for $2.1 billion a couple years ago, Raven decided to set up shop around autonomous driving for tractors in Arizona. They've now hired over 50 people. And Todd, you can guess these are folks making six figures in most cases, yeah. not folks making 20 bucks an hour. They're the yeah. jobs you want. That is a direct response to California's policy decisions and Arizona's policy decisions. And, and, you know, I see nothing to change either direction at this moment. So Arizona will continue to get the windfall of autonomous jobs. And think about it. Would you rather have the jobs to an R&D, which is three to five guys in a garage and some, and some grant funding, or would you rather have the scale out testing and manufacturing jobs? Right. I'd rather have the second one
0: seven days a week. Yeah, there's no doubt. Well, you, I, you know, I, I love what you talked about AI. And I think people need to be cognizant that AI is not dangerous. Right. It's the people behind AI that are dangerous. And that's Correct. the thing, right? AI, AI is only going to do what AI is told. Right. And that's you have to ask who's behind that, who's exactly pressing right. those buttons and who's making those decisions. So I think we, it's we you know,
1: enabled Hal to make that to make that statement in Space Odyssey, right? We we wrote Hal to be able to do that. That's our bad.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that 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 this is a lot of what I think freaks people out when it comes to technology. A lot of things that people get, you know, it's all bad, it's gonna ruin the world. Has all the potential to do all that, absolutely. But it's not necessarily coming out. I don't think that autonomous tractors' goal is to just drive over the planet and screw everything up. I just don't think that's the basis of it. Somebody may have that idea, but that's not what they're designed to do. And so I think it's important that as we talk about technology and we talk about all these different things, and we've gone, you know, already gone down some pretty good holes with CA and some of these other stuff, we're talking about labor and this stuff. Is that we need to remember it's the people behind these things that matter. So if you're concerned about it, find out who's you know, get more involved. Don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you think autonomous right. driving is bad. Get into find you know who is bad behind it. I mean, it's it's no different than yep. you want to look at things when it comes to gene Do you want to look at things when it comes to gene. We can go down a whole list of things you can talk about. It's it's again, it's who's behind it that makes you concerned, right? That's right. I, I, so let's switch gears, but well, while we're on this on AI, talk to me a little bit about the, the farm of the future stuff that you guys have going. What is, because I think it's a good segue into that, if you wouldn't mind touching on that a bit. Yeah. So there's a growing trend and recognition that we need to
1: do a couple of things to really get farmers comfortable with this technology. You've got to, to put it on a farm that looks like their farm that you can show it off. And, and so I've seen examples of this. There's a couple of good ones um up in Washington in Yakima Valley, um, and as Anran's group, the Washington Tree Fruit Research Commission, and Steve Mantle's group, Innovate Ag, they've done some really interesting stuff up there with Farm of the Future. I've gone up there and for a morning from nine to noon, Steve will basically introduce new technologies and then put you in zones. And the audience includes educators, it includes students, it includes researchers, it includes growers. Um and it includes some some capital guys once in a while as well, right? Sometimes venture capital, sometimes others. Steve will get a good audience out there to look at these um, solutions in their native environment, right? In an apple orchard that is growing some variety of apples, Um, they'll show off irrigation stuff, they'll show off some of the genetic stuff, they'll show off, I mean, basically a variety of things. So in three hours, you are able to, as a local grower or as a local educator, come out and get up to speed on like six to seven different technologies, which is just a really efficient use of time, right? And so I think, and, and having, it's funny, so I don't know if you saw it, we actually just did a two-day study, not study, a two-day trip with um, USA Today with Beth Weiss, uh, where Beth came down. And I met Beth at, a, at one of the Forbes AgTech shows, Geez, six, seven years ago now. So she's been in this space for a while. We brought her down for two days, and did nothing but show her growers and startups and then some nonprofits that are helping with the next gen ag worker education stuff I mentioned over two mm-hmm. days, but that took two days, Todd. And that's yeah. a lot, right? So we had her basically all over Salinas Valley for a period of two days. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring you to one spot, put you down in that farm of the future, have, have presentations in the field from all of these different entities at one time, in one spot for a wider <laughs> audience. So we're not doing it all one-off because the USA Today thing was great, but it's one reporter and a series of meetings and it's two days of my time and one of our PR com members' time to make it happen. It's all great. It went well. The article came out great. Who knew that ag tech and ag could make the front page of USA Today on Monday?
0: Now we do, right?
1: And the online version got a, got a lot of nice pickup. So Farm of the Future is basically, how do we put a working farm with all the cool tech toys into play so that growers can come out and validate what the tech is doing and feel comfortable doing trials or actually moving to purchase. How can we give the media a place to come out and see this? Um, I saw the power of what they're building in Yakima. We want to build it in California. We're making some early strides in that direction. And so this will be something, and UC Merced is another one, by the way. Josh Pierres has done a fantastic job with a $20 million AI grant with four universities. Merced is one of the keys Washington State, Oregon State, and Virginia, I believe, are the other three. They will be building AI institutes for ag tech on all four campuses. And Josh, in conjunction with that, is building a, I believe, 55-acre smart farm slash farm of the future at Merced. We want to put one in Salinas Valley as well. And again, this just gives startups a chance to try this stuff in a real-world environment. It gives the growers a chance to watch how it's doing. And then for me, the, the, one of the highlights of Farm of the Future, other than the media coming and showing and, 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 and seeing it, is let's then write the case studies up that say, we tried this tool, this solution, in this lettuce crop, and here were the results, right? right? We tried this tool in a production facility, and here are the results. We tried this in a supply chain on the way to a retailer, and here are the results, right? Let's show all of those because... Again, as a startup operator for 30 years, Todd, I can tell you, the startup can write their case studies up all they want. It gets heavily discounted because you wrote it up, right? right? If Western Growers is writing the case study and we've got a cadre of folks that are coming on board to help us make that happen, if Western Growers does that, there's a level of credibility from Western Growers being the industry group, not the startup that the growers recognize. So Farm of the Future, to me, ties into seeing it live in a production environment and getting it written up. So if you couldn't make it to the farm, we can still get you comfortable with the technology solutions, you know, at at your ranch.
0: I love that. I mean, I, 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 I think that's great. I think that that's going to be an incredibly valuable resource. I also think it's going to be a really unique thing because it is, um, I don't want to say it the wrong way, but in some ways you're kind of thinning the herd a little bit because you're doing the heavy lifting before. I mean, you're just not going to come out with somebody who's like, Oh, I got a shovel. Look, I get to go onto your farm for a week to show everybody, right. It's going to be a little bit more than that. And I think that that's, really, really important. And to your point, you know, it's like, it's like walking into home Depot and looking at lights. It's like, well, that looks good, but what's going to look like in my house. Right. And I think that it's right. the exact same thing. I think that's really powerful. That's exciting. I think that'd be great. I can't wait to see that come around. That'd be a fun visit. I'm yeah, I know we
1: are hoping to, we're hoping to have an announcement in the fall um, at Fury USA. So stay tuned, but um, you know, that's, that that's where things are going. Is you're exactly right. That that light on my kitchen, that light on my you know on my table. I need to see that, and we and we can help do that at scale, which is nice. And so, um, and again, the one in Merced's great. The one in Yakima's great, but we need one on the coastal side of California as well. Um, we just need to give multiple people looks at this. And again. It, it can have all the tech toys, right? It can have the production facility. It can have the fields. It can have crop rotations. It can have everything. Um, but I think it's really going to push things forward. And, and I'm excited about that one, maybe as much as anything else, just because I've seen the power of case studies. I've seen the power of trials. And um, if we can do those at a little bit more scale, um, everyone wins.
0: That's really exciting. Well, congratulations on that. That'll that'll keep you employed for a while. That's gonna be a big project. <laughs> <laughs> well, job security through through initiative, Todd. <laughs> I love absolutely I love that. What was the one? What was the one I saw yesterday? Somebody on the news talked about they oh, they were talking about the guys in the post office. And the postmaster general said that the post office is not gonna be profitable for five more years. I thought, job security, baby, he's there for five. He can be a right? failure for five years. That's all I heard. It's like, what the hell? just killed it. But that's exciting. Let's get into something. Go ahead, please.
1: No, I was going to say, just a funny USPS story. So back in 2004, a good buddy of mine, he actually moved out from Chicago and then brought me to eBay. So, so he came out for a product medic. He made his way through law school, basically selling uh, Lexus Nexus paid for half of his, his, his MBA. Or, uh, and then his selling trading cards, selling baseball trading cards paid for the other. So long story short, he gets a job at eBay early, brings me out. And, and that guy, five years later, did the deal with USPS. It was probably one of the best deals in USPS history. It was a revenue sharing arrangement between USPS and eBay on those e- eBay shipping boxes. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, and I, obviously I was close to that deal because I was on seller program side. But I have to say that, was, that landed in 2005. It's 2023. I haven't seen a lot of USPS innovation team
0: in about, in about 18 years, right? I think yeah. my
1: buddy Steele is the last good one they talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, yeah, it's unfortunate, but you're not wrong there. You're not wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, I want to stay in this technology thing a little bit. One of the things that's starting to happen that we're seeing in the produce space that's getting more and more pressed, it's starting to get a little bit more. I find it to be a very fascinating conversation. is... Where we're heading now with gene editing and and fresh produce using CRISPR technology, right? That's coming into the marketplace where you're messing a little bit with the DNA. You're doing some stuff that's a little bit out there in some ways. It's it's definitely a little bit creepy. And it it goes back to uh, the question I throw out all the time. Are you working with Mother Nature or are you being with Mother Nature? Because the latter one is never going to work out. I promise you that. That is a safe bet in Vegas, in my opinion. So this is kind of a messy battle coming up. You know, and consumers aren't going to know that this battle is taking place because none of this has to be labeled. Gene editing does not have to be labeled, you know, as GMOs do or organic has to be whatever. I mean, it's just going to be there. and It's going to be something that's interesting because, when, you know, when you when you change the code, you own the code. And that's another angle of all this. that's kind of fascinating. I expect the organic industry, as it's starting to do, to be vocal. Um, Full disclosure, I invited uh, one of these groups on my podcast and to talk about, thought we were good. We had a date set. They saw the questions I wanted to ask and they bailed. So that says a lot to me about what they're doing. And I'm not throwing any stones. Keep your name off the table. But, you know, if you can't come to somebody, you know, you can't, if you're going to run from, if you're going to run from tough questions, then it's only going to get harder for you. right? I know the organic industry is certainly keeping an eye on this and they're going to come at them full bore. Talk to me a little right. bit about all this stuff. I mean, it's it's it is kind of a scary part of technology, I'm not going to lie. At least it bothers me. This is an area that bothers me for sure. Talk to me a little bit about what you're thinking about it.
1: Yeah, so and and again, I'll disclose I I am less familiar with this topic than I am the general biologicals topic um, and the automation that's where I spend my time, but what sure. I what I will say is this it's interesting. So Bonnie Estes has done a lot on this and done some nice podcast work on this um, with the uh, Fresh Takes on Tech. And I'm not trying to plug everyone's podcast on your
0: Don. No. I, I, I do think look, Von, I, podcasts um, are great information. So I have nothing against anybody. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, But I think it's right. Yeah, I can give a shit. So, I think it's great. It's important. So go
1: listen to Vani if you really want to go deep on this one. But I think what got me smart on it was one of the podcasts where they said, look, the difference is this. Gene editing is when you do things through genetic editing that don't bring that, that basically just do stuff faster gene modifications when you bring something foreign into the discussion to right. your point right so if right. you're injecting th- so if you're just doing what nature can do faster like borlog wanted to do with his you know ma- magic wheat um that's all fine and we can do that you know better better living through science right uh, better living through tech a little bit on that one so i i do put a little bit of a line between the editing stuff and the GMO stuff. And then I look at it with this lens on it, Todd. So I, I, I put that discussion to bed in about 30 seconds. I say, if you're not bringing anything new, it is different than if you are bringing something new, probably ought to be regulated, disclosed, labeled differently. Um, and we'll see. And, and, and Europe and I mean, Western Europe has been at the forefront of a lot of this stuff rightly or wrongly, you can argue. Um, right. But here's, here's where I come down. Is, there's only so many tools in the toolkit, right? We've got, we've got chemistry that can do some things. It's reducing an efficacy, We've got biologicals that can do some things, and we've got genetics, right? So as a toolkit, we've got three things that we can use. We already talked about we're massively reducing uh, chemistry usage through innovation solutions and through regulatory impact, increasingly more regulatory impact, right? Because we've, we've played out a lot of the efficiency gains we can have in chemistry. People don't realize how much less chemistry we use as an industry than 50 years ago, but, but never good enough for some people, right? so chemistry well, is but it depends on the second chemistry
0: second. too right i mean it depends on what chemistry we're talking about so if we're talking pesticides totally. right i mean there's so much data that supports right i mean and to be fair when you're talking about right. pesticide right a pesticide is only bad you know a pesticide's good until it's proven bad we just saw that with dactyl so i mean that's coming it's right down the train so yeah no, that's I, fair. I so, so chemistry under pressure with some merit totally agree yeah.
1: biologicals and again, if you look at Shane Thomas, Shane Agronomy is his handle. He's got a great newsletter on Upstream Upstream Ag Insights. Shane is tremendous. Shane will tell you that biologicals are, in all likelihood, they're the higher-growing segment of the two. They're going to pass chemistry in the next couple of years, right? He, I think his forecast was for 2025, and it's actually yeah. accelerating faster than that. So biologicals passes chemistry, but a lot of that stuff's not as, efficient as we'd like, as effective as we'd like just yet. So biologists are going to reduce their efficiency. The other lever we have to pull is the genetic one, right? Um, and again, whatever you want to say about it, um, that's the third lever. And that's the one if you talk to a lot of the folks close to the business, that's the one they'll say that has the most upside to capture um, with the least captured on the field, right? So it's it's the high beta performer of the bunch. So I actually think that you can't look at GMO and gene editing without the backdrop of what's happening with chemistry and biology at the same time. I think political science will have as much to do with, with the outcome in GMO and gene editing as regular science, better
0: or worse. Yeah, that's a good angle. Look, I I mean, I, I, my, my whole, basis and functions i've always believed in consumption first mentality when i started in this business a thousand years ago we were just selling rocks as apples back then um but mm-hmm. you know the bottom line is is my own mentality is like let's get you folks to eat an apple i'll convince you to eat the organic one i mean i think there's a better alternative out there and i agree with where your, your position is i think it's going to be a topic that again goes back to what we talked about earlier about people better understanding the value of food. People are going to need to start to ask questions and invest in what's going on around them and it's it's a good thing to do. I really believe that. It's no different than understanding AI. Right? Again, it's it's AI itself is bad. It's the people behind AI that you got to worry about. So some of this is going to be happening. I think it's I mean it's I think it's going to be an interesting evolution how this comes into play. Um, I think it's going to be um, very, I think it's going to be interesting to watch how they try to get this through the consumer and what they're going to try to do. I mean, I think because you know if they're running from questions I'm asking, they're going to get a lot harder questions from a lot of other people too, right? And and I'm I'm curious right. what that's going to be. I, and I don't want to take you down some rabbit hole that you're that you're not you know hip to. And I'm totally fine with that. I just more more interested. Like, all right, what do you think about this kind of stuff? Because it's gonna it ain't going away, right? All these different things we're talking about now. They've been cooking for a couple, three or four years. They're just popping their head out Absolutely. of the sand now. And there's more stuff behind them. And so I just think it goes back to yeah. kind of all of it. We got to start to better understand our food. We got to understand what, to your point, what's a farm in the future? What's going to be? Food is medicine, right? Food is health, right. which I know is an initiative that you guys are about. And we can certainly touch on that. But I think it's just so important that we have to have these conversations to get people informed. Like I always say, man, I don't want to tell you what to think, but I sure want to make people think. I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. Well,
1: and on the genetics front, I mean, think about it. It's not just pest, right? It's drought resistance. Yeah. Um, think about think about genetics in terms of, of automation. So, it, it, heck, in terms of labor in general, right? So, I've been out there, and um, Bayer's got a product in their portfolio from Seminus, right, called um, – well, it's high-rise broccoli. It might be Eiffel, might be the brand name. Um, but basically, it's a nine-inch broccoli stock. And the product is bred two ways. It's bred to have a nine-inch stock, so it's off the ground. It's bred to have a nice tight head, so that it's easy to view for both the human picker or the robot picker, right? So, so how much better is a broccoli product that is easy to see, easy to cut, and like a three-six or nine-inch mark, depending on how much you know slaw you want out of the stock, right? Which is perfect right. for that. Um, so, so how many products could you make the labor or the robot more efficient if you just had an off the ground? tight head format right genetics can help with that so we're seeing some good movement in that direction um just one example again you've seen drought resistant stuff for a while um i just i think genetics i think it's um it's the first inning of of an extra innings game yeah and i think again we've played out so much in chemistry and we're playing out so much in biology like biology is in say the fifth inning chemistry and maybe extras but but you've got a lot of innings left for genetics and i I think we'll recognize over time. I think once the data arrives, a lot of these genetic benefits will be viewed differently. And there's going to be shades of gray, right? Right now, there's folks like Western Europe that want to go all black and white. And that's just not the nature of this form of science. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to
0: see play out. I mean, again, I think everybody has an opinion, or if they don't, they should get one. They should invest some time to understanding what the value of their food is and understand what they feel about it, right? Um, Listen to podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. They should, no, it's, it's entirely right. Well, yeah, well, look, I I think that the the podcast media itself, the independent media itself is the only place you're going to be able to go to really, truly get in-depth conversations and answers. I think, you know, trying to go down the mainstream media trail, I think we all agree that that's kind of a a rocky road and a sinking ship and a lot of just craziness that's involved because it's uh, of all the reasons we already can people know and discuss. And I think it's really important that you get yourself involved. But again, when it comes to your food and it comes to your family, it comes to your health if you just think you're going to walk in the grocery store and it's to your point, it's all just unicorns and rainbows and everything's great for you. You're going to have a rough run, right? I mean, but it's going to take people's need to get invested to understand the value of the food. And I love what Western growers doing on all different fronts of trying to get people to kind of open their eyes and see where we're heading. Anything else exciting you want to touch on that we didn't get to, you know, just along that
1: health concept, you know, there's a growing discussion, a growing conversation you people around food is health, because what's really interesting is, you know, we've been saying, you know, eat five a day, right, forever on the fruits, nuts, and veg side of things, right. and yet demand is constrained, right? And, and, you know, if you listen to Bruce Taylor, when he did a great keynote at the uh, Food Safety Summit at, uh, at Hartnell last year, he said, look, part of the challenge is the industry needs to work better with the FDA and the media, and I would say fault on both sides, right? We are scaring the heck out of consumers when every recall and outbreak makes it onto CNN at the two minute mark every hour for days, right? And so uh, we all acknowledge that food safety outcomes that are bad are terrible, right? Nobody wants the outbreak, nobody wants the recall. Um, But the industry that we compare it a lot to is in aviation, we all get on planes every day, right? We all fly in the US, internationally, wherever we want, and we know there's risk of the bad plane outcome, but, but we don't worry about that as much. Now, is that messaging as a result Is the data? Who knows? But I think there's room for the FDA and the media to work with agriculture and do a better job of positioning the actual risk of those bad outcomes relative to the amount of produce that we're putting into the supply chain, right? I mean, we are, we are really doing a great job of minimizing the risks. And the other reality is, um, again, on the food is health stuff is we have more tests than ever to identify this stuff. So I think part of the reason why we have so many of these of these things getting reported, which seems like it's, it's, it's terrible, and it is, is because we can test for more of this stuff than ever, right? So as the innovators have focused on fixing and identifying, we need to, to get better about just saying, okay, we're doing a better job of identifying it so there aren't bad outcomes, but then don't crush us when we when we get the tests in some yeah. cases, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's an interesting. So that that all dovetails into how do we get the demand to happen? Well the demand should happen because if you don't pay for the apple today, you're going to pay for the doctor tomorrow,
0: right? Yeah, and 100%. so
1: we've got a we've got a 1.9 trillion dollar cost of bad healthcare outcomes in this country per year. And what we as an industry are starting to argue and I think we're making consistent noise in the right direction on this one and getting, getting the groundswell coming from the bottom, if you will. I think we're recognizing that some of that 1.9 trillion would be better spent getting people to better health health outcomes through a variety of factors, right? Um, some of it is government spending on SNAP and some of these programs. Some of it is do we scale up the USDA food box program that Western growers, folks like Sentara and See Brazil did a great job with on that, on that effort. Um, but how can we basically get more of this great, best medicine in the world into people's hands? And it's largely through a Food is Health initiative that, that is, to be candid, probably going to take on a little bit of the pharma and the and the health businesses, because in some ways, you know, you can either solve this through pharma or you can solve this through food. And we would say, you know what, pharma's had its shot, didn't work out that well. So let's, let's redirect some of those dollars to food. Well, again, you think pharma's going to give those dollars up without a fight? Not a chance, right? But I think we're willing to stand up and have that fight in broad daylight.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that the the the, the power, the power uh of pharma is far greater than I think even we know today and their control and what they do and all of stuff. But to, to go to your point of what you're saying about, you know, food is health. And I believe that food is medicine, right? It can, it can help It can cure you. It can kill you all at the same time. In my opinion, something I believe in and I'll die on this mountain is that the fastest way that we're going to change the health of this planet is by feeding our kids better food at school and starting with a massive education program throughout their, time that we have them as a captive audience in our school systems about the health benefits and why we should be eating differently, providing those choices, providing scratch cooking, getting away from some of the crazy stuff that's in the food system today, and really start to empower these kids. You want to make changes. You want to improve the climate farm better. You know. You want to improve your health, right. eat better. right? You, there's so many benefits that come from this. The trickle-down effect by working with the children, I believe today, is one of the greatest things that we can lean into as a society, is to elevate this conversation with these young kids. Start them in preschool, get them learning, get them all the way through high school. The data supports it. The school districts that are doing this support what they're seeing. Kids are sitting in, a, in lunch. They're sitting at lunch longer with their friends because they're actually eating their food because it tastes good and they're understanding right. it, and they're getting meal choices and they're being a part of it. I think it's incredibly powerful. I think it's incredibly undervalued and I would love to see us take that much more seriously in this country. I think it changes so much. Yeah.
1: No, so stay tuned. I think we, we've got some stuff that's in the lab right now that we're working on uh, getting ready for prime time, but I, I think we'll have, we'll have some news in the next couple months on this front. Cause I think, Western Growers is in a somewhat unique position to be a, a, a convening point around this topic. And um, we've got some partners that want to also be, um, you know, in, in the fray on this one. So again, to me, the most interesting angle on it is you, when you realize that that 1.9 trillion is an annual number and it's only getting worse and you realize, okay, the stuff we're spending that on,
0: that we can improve that. There's a stat out there that talks about, I believe it's in 2050, that the cost for uh, dementia-related problems are going to be in the $2 trillion range. For for one, I mean, there's so many things that are out there that we can change through the food, what we do, how we eat, how we prepare our food, how we farm our food, all of it. And I think those are the conversations that, you have presented today for people to think about, angles that people need to be thinking about, opportunities that people need to be thinking about. So what this platform is built on is what I talk about all the time is that we need to be having these conversations so people can form opinions, get more involved, and recognize, like we said earlier, AI is not bad. It's the people behind AI that's bad, right, that you got to worry about. Those I shouldn't say all people, that's a generalization. Right. I don't mean it that quite broadly, but, I mean, that's the thing to be worried about. And the same thing with food and farming, right? There's There's people out doing great things. There's people out not doing such great things. That's fair to say. We know that. So be invested in it, right? Find what that value is, right? Put value into food. And I think we uplift. When we start to do that, I think we're going to start to change this this planet. I think we'll start changing our country. I think we'll start changing our health. Totally agree. Yep. No, triple win. I love it. What else? Anything else exciting as we wind down? Boy, we have covered a lot. We covered a lot. We would, Todd. We're going to get hate mail. We're going to get love letters. I can't wait. The organic people are going to be <laughs> pissed at me because I didn't jump the basketball thing. I can hardly wait for Just them. Just care. Just care. <laughs> get them off the bed. Well, you know, no, it, I would it, say.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. No, my, my wrap up thought is, you know, the thing that I spend a lot of time reminding people is that that really. And again, this is going to sound a little, a little California heavy because it probably is. But I just I I know the amount of acreage that we put at risk with things like Sigma after not building any reservoirs for 50 years and not doing any maintenance on a bunch of others that my family and others helped build in San Luis and Monterey County. So so we did a bad job of managing water infrastructure resources for 70 years. Um, And now we're telling farmers that you're going to lose one point five million to two million acres of production ag in the San Joaquin Valley alone. Oh, by the way, those acreage totals are like four to eight Salinas valleys of production ag. Thanks very much. Yeah. All because we didn't get enough water and all because we never did desal. And so what, what I would like people to think about is if you take those 2 million acres of production out of the San Joaquin Valley, what's the plan for a vibrant rural economy in places like Reedley and all these small towns that are heavily ag-based? Because I've looked around. And again, grew up on a small ranch in a town of 400 that my family put together. Was in Imperial as well, looking at Imperial Valley, a heavily ag based economy. I can't think of a vibrant rural economy that does not use the land to produce value for the residents. And so, whether that's ag, energy, lumber, mining, whatever it is, the more that we restrict the usage of the land, the more that we put rural economies and rural America and rural California in harm's way. We watched it happen with globalization. I would strongly urge Sacramento and D.C. to think twice about over-regulating this stuff. Because if you take those 2 million acres out of production in California, and they will go to Mexico and places further south, you're leaving a gaping economic hole in hundreds of agricultural-based communities in places like where I grew up in. And I, I want to throw the flag on the plate because I want to throw it before it happens. So when mm-hmm. it happens, people can look back at this podcast in a couple of years and say, huh, what's that guy saying now? Hopefully it builds our credibility because it's, it's a crime, what we're doing to rural in California, um, all because we can. Because politically, ag doesn't have enough of a
0: voice to do much about it. I don't disagree with you on that, sir, one bit whatsoever. I take a look at what we're doing. Water, You can just look at water in this state and the way we've handled it and the destruction that it's causing because we don't get our shit together. We can't. We cannot get past conversations. It's like you either are right or you're wrong and we cannot talk. And that is just so frustrating. We've chatted on it before you and I, that it is so important to be open-minded and have conversations. Transparency is how we're going to solve these problems by having conversations based upon transparency. I don't, you don't need to change my opinion, but I want to learn from you. And if we don't go into those conversations thinking like that, we're screwed. We're going to continue to be screwed. And you're absolutely right. These farm communities are going to be just absolutely riddled with nothingness because we can't get it together, right? And as the bullet train passes by with a conductor and a <laughs> flight attendants on it, or whatever you're called when you're on a train and nobody else, they can go, God, I wish we'd have spent that money and recaptured some water and done some things to make the world a better place, right? Because that's agriculture can point. do that in so many ways. Great place to stop, I can't dude. give a
1: better example than the bullet train, dude. That, that, that's really strong. Because that three and a half billion dollars, that, that put a lot of water in place. Totally it's unbelievable.
0: Right. It's unbelievable. I mean, look, we're, we're dealing with it now. The runoff, you know, is is coming at full force. I'm down on the river. I know what the rivers look like. I'm down there all the time looking at the thing. I've seen this thing, this right. river. The current River is growing wider and wider and wider, and the destruct and and the waters running to the ocean again, right? Larry Lake, we, yeah. Yo, wait till that gets going. I, yeah. I, that's don't I even know. start. That's a whole other drama. That that to <laughs> it Larry, is to it Larry, is Larry, water in California. Would be as big of a hit TV show as anything you've ever seen if they turned it into a TV show. Like Dallas was. People would be shooting each other, like Yellowstone, people would be shooting each other. And there's all 100%. this ballad. It's unbelievable. It's literally, it's, it's the, it's, I'll say, it's the mobsters dressed in Wranglers. That's what water is in right. California. It's crazy. Right. No, I totally agree. It would make Yellowstone look like a warm-up act. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Anyways, what a great place to wrap. What a great place. Dude, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you, buddy. It's been a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. You come back anytime. You know you have an open invitation. I mean, I don't, you know. We'll do it again. I want to make these conversations available.
1: I feel like, I feel like we left a lot on the cutting room floor. So there is room for a sequel.
0: Uh, (laughs) We could, yeah, you and I could, we could have gone for like three hours. I was just trying to keep this thing like, all right, we could have easily done that. I wouldn't have had a problem because there's a lot, because there's so many different angles in which to take about every one of these conversations. Right. Right. But I think it's just super important that we put people, and that's what I I like, I I believe what we've created here and what I'm, I'm proud of is that we put people in positions to think for themselves about topics. It's not about ramrodding things down. It's not about, you know, like I talked to you about, hey, you're going to come on here and say something crazy about running over kittens. Great. You and I will get at that. That's fine. But people need to understand from all sides of stuff. They need to hear what different things are. It's the only way we're going to be educated. It's the only way we're going to advance conversations is by being informed. And we don't do enough of it. So kudos to the way you handled it. And come back. You have an open invitation. You know that. You don't have to get me fired up to cool. chat with
1: you. <laughs> no, back at you. No, it's been great. This is as fun as I thought. I, I, I knew listening to you, have, we'd have a conversation like this, and we got to go so many places in not that long a time.
0: I appreciate it, man. Everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Go get online to Western Growers, see what they're all about. Go check out what Walt's doing with his Innovation Technology Center. There's some cool stuff going on. Get informed about what's going on in the world. Don't Don't get an opinion after the fact. Get an opinion before things get started. You'll be a lot happier, trust me. A lot less frustration in your life. Anyway, thanks for being here. We appreciate you. Much love from me to you. Remember, love and kindness wins the day. And you can also help go inspire somebody. Walt, I appreciate you, brother. I'll see you soon.